Master Tavern Keepers, History of the Old World. Well, let us now speak of the last type of gin, the royal gin. It was around the fires of the Tuareg camp that I first heard tell of the royal gin. It was said that only three of these exist and that they are secreted away within hidden rooms below the ship's decks of the pleasure barge of the Golden Magus. Oh, yeah, Master Tavernkeeper, the who? The Golden Magus, an infamous sorcerer of Araby. He's something of an enigma. The Tuareg went into some detail with regards to him, though. It seems that they hold a particular grudge against him. My comrade... Urzik told me this. To the casual eye, he is a magnanimous man with exotic tastes and a refined manner. His robes are exquisite embroidered silk and he dusts his skin with powdered gold. Over his eye patch dangles a teardrop pearl of great size. He refers to himself as the Sultan of the Seas and is extremely wealthy and equally eccentric. This is simply a facade, though, woven with dark deceits and honey-coated lies. He is, in fact, a wicked sorcerer of great power, perhaps even rivaling that of Jafar. The Golden Magus claims that he is descended from a long line of sorcerers from the southern desert. This too is a lie, though. If you look at ancient texts, in each generation there is indeed someone described as the Golden Magus. But the description of this individual is always the same, even down to his lost eye and his habits. There are no ancestors here. There is only the man himself. In order to muddy the waters further still, he set abroad rumours that he was an exiled king of Kofa in the west, but at the same time convinced some in the east that he was a merchant prince who fled from Tylea here. Both are lies, of course. There are other rumours, though. Some say that he's in thrall to the Dark Lord of Change whilst others still say that he is a Ulthwan spy. Who knows which of these are true? I think it is safe to assume that most are lies. One thing that everyone can agree on, though, is that he is a capricious, unpredictable and devious man. 
As mentioned, at some point he lost his left eye. The empty socket hidden below his pearl-adorned eye patch. Again, the stories about how he lost it greatly vary. Some say he was born with only one eye. Others, that it was in a duel with a fellow sorcerer. Whilst others still say he gave it up voluntarily as part of a dark bargain that granted him both power and long-livedness. In all likelihood, these two are simply lies, though. Most who meet him come away with the impression that he is a wise man of great age, weak and feeble, and easy to either manipulate or eliminate. But again, the Tuareg assured me, this too is a falsehood, and that, in reality, he is no less deadly than a young dervish in his prime. Beware the burning blade of his dagger for it is enchanted by a hundred different fiery curses. I believe them. The one truth I know is this. As a magus, a sorcerer, his true power, his true threat, lies in his magic. He, like Jafar, has mastered control of the jinn and can summon elemental spirits from the air, the ocean, and the Ifrit's flame. He is also a collector of the arcane and the archaic, and in his long life he has discovered many pieces of hidden knowledge and unearthed and accrued many items of esoteric power, including the royal jinn. He is not infallible, though. Indeed, a simple slave defied him and lived to tell the tale and the truth about his former master. It was the Tuareg who taught me the poem of the slave Bantu, who had escaped from his pleasure barge, the flaming scimitar, a generation ago. The flight from the flaming scimitar. From bright boyhood, to dark manhood I toiled, and in service to the golden magus was I wrongly soiled. Under those lofty, slender balconies and towers, those evil minarets, the foci of his powers, were the best years of my life, spent and spoiled. Until one day, with a stolen file of horse oil, I slip free of the chains that about me did so tightly coil, and steal out into the hold, into that dark, deep, dank cold, and a maze of concentric turmoil. And so through my master's labyrinth I moved unbidden, past uncountable alcoves, those in plain sight and those hidden. Barrels of stolen treasure I saw, spices and narcotics littered the floor. Amongst exotic statues, cursed jewels and tomes, forbidden. Although I wished it not, I was drawn deeper and deeper into the world of some fever dream cursed sleeper, ancient jeweled skeletons of sea beasts and clockwork tusked giants from the east, were amongst the trophies captured and kept 
by the Golden Reaper. Until at last I stumbled into one of the most hidden of them all. Ranks upon ranks of jars of gin awaiting the Magus's call. And upon a central dais, displaying my master's bias, stood three gilded and bejeweled great urns, tall. High above was one of the gold-top minarets, in whose shadow I'd been last until my back was blood-red wet. In recompense I thought a thing to these jars would ruin I bring, and give the golden magus a night he'd not forget. I looked closely at each of the three jars in turn, but in staring at the interlocking skulls in chains, my mind did churn, spinning like the spiral design, feeling myself fall and climb. I at last came to focus on the strange motif upon each urn. The crest of each was topped by one symbol out of three, the sacred element of the world triumphant over a dark cracked dead tree, each home to a spirit spun, able to burn the sky and swallow the sun, sealed there long ago by the great necromancer's decree. I grabbed one and heaved it onto my shoulder and staggered to the secret stairs in search of the urn's owner. Up the secret steps I climbed and out onto the deck to find the golden magus waiting, his single eye clearly beginning to smolder. Slave, cease! What do you think that you have there? You'd be wise to return that to me, lest you open it up to the air. And what if I did, I said. We would all be struck dead, but that would only be the start of the whole affair. True, but this was my chance to be free, and so bearing the jar into the river's depths did I dive and flee. The jar sank deep and fast, whilst I was into currents cast, until I found myself washed ashore downstream alive, if weak. They never searched for me, the jar was all, and the Magus sent his minions down to the place it did fall. In time it was recovered, although not before many suffered, his anger and bite at each failed, fruitless trawl. And here the tale ended. The Tuareg bard that sang this tale added that Bantu lived out the rest of his days amongst the Tuareg. Thus it is only the Tuareg who know of the golden Magus's duplicitous nature from Bantu's account of his bondage. I know no more upon these royal jinn, but I think that none of us shall see the day that the royal jinn of Nagash shall be released. Surely their time is when all things come to an end. Oh, yeah, well, that is a relief. Zovizo, I have a question. Much earlier, you mentioned that the uh, Arabian capital, Al-Haik. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that was it. Zovizo, you said that Al-Haik was, although apparently lightly defended in terms of wall and gate, was in fact well defended by the jinn of its master, the Grand Sultan. And uh, that is how we got into talking about all these uh, jinn and elementals and whatnot. Can you now uh, tell us about this? Ah, yes, of course. That is how we ended up travelling along this long tangent. Hmm. Well, anyway, the great and grand sultan of Araby is no mere figurehead. 
for he, like the golden magus, is a powerful individual as a result of his control of the jinn. The Sultan of Al-Haiq himself is no magic worker, though. Rather, it is through his Grand Viziers, the greatest sorcerers of Araby, advisers and court magicians, that his power is wielded. The Jinn of the Earth and the Wind were used in the construction of the greatest monuments in the city, such as the Golden Dome of the Palace. And indeed, it is a Jinn that is charged with preventing its roof from ever falling. The work of protecting the port of the city falls to the sea nymphs, whilst the sultan and the city itself is defended by the jinn of the desert and those of fire, the Ifrits. I heard tell of a battle long ago between the army of a rival sultan and the grand sultan of Al-Hayik that demonstrates their deadly potential. This would-be usurper brought a vast army to the plains in front of the city. The great sultan's army was led by a cabal of his grand viziers. However, although the army of Al-Hayik was both large and powerful, consisting of spearmen, bowmen, royal guards, knights, cavalry on both camel and horse, sorcerers on flying carpets, war elephants, eunuch bodyguards for the commanders, as well as slingers and Arab dervishes. None got to fight. The sorcerers of the Sultan released a large pack of ifrits that tore into the enemy army, each individual jinn, attempting to outdo the others in their fiery wrath. When the smoke had settled and all the jinn had been recaptured, there was nothing left of the opposing army and the plain had become a wasteland. This is why Al-Hayik is safe and no one attacks them. At least until the memory of the last time has faded away. Although uh, men have such short memories. <laughs>